It's not, let me tell you a problem. You go from 2.6 billion to 1.1 billion in a year in sales. That's a problem. <laughs> wow. That's a problem. So we had to go from 5,500 people to 2,100, close 100 facilities, and just try to stop the cash burn. And so, you know, that was kind of the business, fight or flight, man, I'm, I'm all in, you know? And it's that old line, the dragon slayer, you ever see that Teddy Roosevelt speech, you know, about people, it's basically saying, you know, if I die, I'm gonna die, knowing that at least I was in the arena. First of all, these, you know, naysayer bullshit sideliners who don't do anything, you know? Welcome to The Climb, Crossroads and Defining Moments. Today, Brendan Dealey joins Michael and myself for a conversation about business, about his family, about some of his personal trials and tribulations, and how he got through them. Brendan's an amazing friend of mine, a mentor, and just a hell of a guy. You're definitely going to enjoy this episode of The Climb. Thanks for joining us. Brendan Dealey, welcome to The Climb. We appreciate you joining Michael and me today. Glad to be here. Thanks. You know, this is a fun one for me. Brendan, you and I have become, uh, you know, started in working together through business and have since turned into a personal relationship that means a lot to me in a lot of different ways. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But, you know, I think maybe a good way to kind of kick things off is, you know, give us kind of the overview. Of who's Brendan Dealey? Yeah. Well, thanks, Bob. I mean, it is. It's been a hell of a relationship that we've built and continue to build. And, and so I'm, I'm glad to be here and, and uh, tell you a little bit about me and maybe how I think about things. So Brendan Dealey, I'm, I'm a husband and I'm a father to five first and kind of foremost. I really like building things, businesses, teams to good outcomes. I don't have all the answers and I don't want to. And so I think it's, you know, how do you leverage people? How do you deal with things? truthfully. And you know, I think I've learned over the years that it's just hit things head on and, and be real and, and just try to, there's always a way out and to never, ever give up. I think I found out over time that there's that fight or flight. Well, I don't run. And I think I always want to win. I don't always win, but God damn it, I go into everything wanting to <laughs> kick ass and win. And so it's just a mentality, you know, and it's, I see people that are just kind of just kind of meander through their careers and you know that's just incredibly boring for me and uh, I think the only thing you do to wreck a business is do nothing and so sounds like he's got a little Texas in him yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man sister down there so maybe it's rubbing off on me <laughs> but you know I was hoping that we were going to be able to avoid the Texas comment but it took all of about two minutes for it to come into the conversation from Michael <laughs> It's just born and bred, baby. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I was born an Army brat. I was uh, Army captain for a couple of years. And then I've been in kind of building materials for 30 years almost. So it's a, uh, I think some of those toolkits have helped me kind of move through through my career. When you're an Army brat, Brendan, as you say, what, you know, what does that mean? Were you guys traveling a lot when you were a kid? Were you guys all over the place? Like maybe a little background there on kind of growing up in that type of world. Yeah, so I was uh, the youngest of six, and we're six and a half years apart, so good Irish stock. <laughs> and so 
my dad did three tours in Nam. I didn't really know him until I was five. Didn't know that as a problem, but it was just, you know, what it was. But born in the U.S., moved to Germany, moved to Brazil, moved to Panama, left the U.S. when I was three, came back when I was 12, 13. Don't watch a lot of TV because of that, because it was never in my language. And, and I think, you know, if you're in an environment where you move a lot as a kid, I think you're, you're going to go two paths, introvert or extrovert. And so I've always found it pretty easy to talk to people. And I always found when you moved into a new place, you meet the dorks first because they're starving <laughs> for friends. And then you, <laughs> you kind of move it forward. But I mean, it's, I didn't know any different, but I think that's helped me. You know, like when I went to college, kind of a non-event, you know, I had fun, but the people that lived in their same town just went crazy. I had my versions of fun too, but it's a good, it's a good background. And I think it gives me a perspective that, you know, most Americans don't realize that there's other countries that have far worse issues, you know, and we have two sons adopted from Ethiopia. So it's just the whole perspective is is healthy. And uh, I think a lot of times people see poor countries and they're frankly some of the happiest people I've met because mm-hmm. they don't have anything but faith and, you know, food. You know, we break an ATM card and it's you know, everybody's triggered for a day. So it's just... <laughs> You mentioned you're one of six. So where is everybody today? And you close brothers, sisters? I mean, you said you mentioned some people down in Texas. So yeah, my uh, mother's still alive. She's 86 in Philly. My twin sister is uh, in Philadelphia as well. And then I have a sister and a brother in the Dallas area. And then two brothers outside of D.C. and Virginia. So we're, we've kind of gone west, as it were, but uh, still very close. And it was kind of cool when you're a kid, when you moved in, I had three older brothers. I'm six foot. They're both, they're all six, six four. So we came in, we took over the neighborhood because we had every age kind of covered. <laughs> and if you want to bug with me, I got some big guys behind me. And so it was pretty cool, but it was you know, really close now. But you know, one of the things that's come out of this whole COVID gong show is you know, we do uh, weekly Zoom calls with my mother with all of us. So it's just interesting. Oh, that's, that's great. How you do. And we do bingo with my wife's mother and family. So it's just, you know, some, then I, we never did that. So we're talking a hell of a lot more than we've seen each other than we ever did. So there's always good comes out of, you know, bad. And then you mentioned you did some, some time in the army, right? Yeah. So when was that after college before, like where did that fall in that spectrum? Yeah, it was after college. I went to, actually it was an ROTC. I had a four-year scholarship and I went to basic training when I was 18. So I was in the reserves while I was in school, but I got commissioned in 88 and um, infantry officer. And um, yeah, it was 22 years old and here's 40 guys for you to take care of I'm like whoa okay <laughs> they're all mostly older than me but and so you know had some good success i was stationed at fort bragg and then fort drum and then in reserves for a little bit but in we were activated for desert storm and ready to go and i was a company commander at the time so i had 210 people i'm 20 i don't know 25 26 and uh, you do all this training and you do, you're prepared for it. And, but then it gets real, you know, live ammo. Here we go. And so we were down at Fort Bragg ready to go. And um, 
you know, the air war hit and then they sent the, you know, the tanks and the cabin. It was basically over in, you know, two weeks. So we didn't go. I was willing to go, and but I was okay not to go. But it was, you know, huge amount of responsibility at 26 years old. And I think that's where I really learned you know, the military is the same rank, structure, and organization design as it was 100 years ago. So I think of all the companies that kick around with organizations all the time, you know, hospitals, military, and universities are kind of kind of stuck with what works. And so, you know, I was throughout my career, I've been leading functions or businesses where, you know, I was on the lower end of the age. But I think that's where you got to lean on the team. You know, everybody knows the rank. It's just how do we get this thing together? And when bullets start flying, they're going to shoot you or they're going to run with you, you know? And so it's how do you leverage people's capabilities? And, um, you know, I still ref soccer. I played it for years. And I did a, a message out to our team when COVID first hit. And I said, you know, this is, you know, like a good soccer team. It only has 11 positions, right? And you, you got to put a center midfielder in a striker position, you're going to suck. You know? <laughs> yeah. If you get the right people in the right positions, you're really going to do well. And, and the key is sometimes working with people to let them see that, you know, this is not really what you're best at. And if I can put you in this role and give you the latitude to do what you need to do, it's usually pretty amazing how people... They don't want to be micromanaged, you know. They don't mind. I'm, I'm fair but firm in how I approach things, but I'll give you an avenue to work because, especially in business, people report to me as a CEO. They're not making fifty grand a year, right? And so, they should be able to do what's necessary. And if they need help, you know, reach out and I'll be there. But I just approach it that we're all adults, and um, you know, make a good call and adjust on the fly. And so. I think that helps, you know, they always said in the military that you, you come up with a, a, you know, a plan and there's this thing called net T mission enemy time terrain as far as planning and you do all the shit and then it all is great until you start moving and then it's all, <laughs> you just got to adjust. And so, you know, you got to have a plan, you got to have a strategy, but you got to be fluid and, um, you know, just keep moving. So you really feel like the the training and the perspective you gained with your time in the army carries forward into your approach to business and building companies and managing teams. I mean, there's a lot. It seems like there's a lot of parallels there for you. I do, and I, I think it's especially in a private equity environment, which I've been in for the last two years. I think they get a bad notion, right? So if it's if it's a growth equity private equity firm, and they're great. They're looking to grow the business. They're looking to invest. They're looking to us to have a strategy and to execute the strategy. And so there's other ones that are turnaround PE. That's, I'm not interested in that. I'm, I want to grow businesses. I'll deal with things if I have to. But I think it's you know kind of zero failure mission all the time. And uh, you know, let's we might get wounded, we might get hurt, but let's keep the end in mind and, and you know bob and weave as we need to. But we got to deliver the goods. And so, you know, getting people who who see that and feel like they're part of the solution is great. Because I I've always rather have a I've bought enough business, I bought 29 companies throughout my career. You know, if there's a dominating personality running the business, I, I got no use for it. Right. And so 
if you have a dominating strategy, I'd rather have that over a dominating personality because there's usually weak people below them or yes people and, and no creativity. And so I think that's what the military forces on people is you have to, everybody has to play a role here. And, and that's what I try to do in my business is, yeah, I'm a CEO, but if I, if I have to make all the decisions, I got the wrong people. And so I think creating an environment where it's okay to speak your mind, actually, I want it. But if you think something's wrong, you, you better have a pretty good idea how to fix it. You know, because it's, we're not talking, you know, world hunger. We're trying talking about sending 7% more door hardware. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, uh, and it's important, but I think it's that self reflection of let's keep things in relative perspective. Brendan, when uh, your first, I guess, bigger gig when you started buying some more businesses, that was at USG, right? Correct. Yeah. And so I was there for 26 years, great company, Chicago-based. I spent 26 years there, 12 of it on the manufacturing, sheetrock you've heard of before, and ceiling top, a bunch of different roles, general management roles. And I moved over to, to the distribution business called L&W Supply, which is now owned by ABC Supply. And I had kind of a COO role for a couple of years. And then you know, in 2002, at 36, I took over the business. And it was 900 million in revenue at the time, basically operated east of the Rockies and, you know, call it 2,500 employees. And it had been growing mostly through greenfield expansion over the years. It was established in 71, but we saw a real potential to consolidate this industry. And so we put together a plan for the board of directors, got approval. And in a little over two years, uh, we acquired 15 companies over a billion dollars worth of revenue and, and went from you know 900 million in 2002 to our peak year was 2006 is 2.6 billion wow and 5500 employees so you know to pull that off and integrate the systems and and the people and put people in the right roles i had to have a great HR person great great HR person great operations people great you know finance and so I think sometimes the CEO gets too much of the credit. You know, it's, it's so many people make this thing happen. And, you know, one of the things I didn't say before, but when I was 19, I worked at a, actually a drywall yard and I, you know, loaded wallboard. I drove a truck. I operated a boom. And, and I never lost sight of that's really the business. It's not the 18th floor, right? And so it's the people out there operating around power lines every day and operating safely and not hurting themselves or other people, you know, safety was a huge part of that business. And I think it goes back to working on a firing range and, you know, using automatic weapons. It's just, that is such a core thing. You don't, you don't fuck with people. I mean, you got to take care of them and you got to treat them right. And so, but yeah, it was a great run. We got to the peak and then, then the recession hit and, you know, we went from, I was telling my team recently about, you know, COVID and all this stuff, which is real, but we, we managed through it pretty well. It's not, let me tell you a problem. You go from 2.6 billion to 1.1 billion in a year in sales. That's a problem. <laughs> wow. That's a problem. So we had to go from 5,500 people to 2,100, close a hundred facilities and just try to stop the cash burn. And so you know, that was kind of the business fight or flight, man, I'm, I'm all in, you know, 
And it's that old line, the dragon slayer. You ever see that Teddy Roosevelt speech, you know, about people? It's basically saying, you know, if I die, I'm going to die knowing that at least I was in the arena. Versus all these, you know, naysayer bullshit sideliners who don't do anything, you know? And so... Brendan, during that time, I mean, I got to imagine, like, how did you keep people motivated as you're, you know, shedding this many people off? Like, how? Do, I mean, in that role, you're like, again, you're talking, hey, you know, CEO gets too much credit. But at the end of the day, and that I got to imagine, like, you, you got to be there to keep people around too to be able to yeah, it was, get uh, some of this know, done. You're, you're a little bit of a bipolar, I think, you know, but because we were in a meeting one time, we had to take we had made an agreement as a management team that we're going to take out like 700 salary positions. And, you know, there's back and forth. We're burning cash, you know, we're doing all this stuff and everybody's, we can't do this. And I'm like, guys, let's agree. We got fucked here and let's get over it. Like we got to save this business. And so they were short. And I said, look, we agreed to this thing. It's not fun, but we have to do it. You know, we got to get to the other side, treat people have to leave fairly. And it was back and forth. And I said, look, you can either do it the right way or we're going to Oracle and start with the letter S and start picking names because my first girlfriend was Susan. We could be that arbitrary or we could do it the right <laughs> way. Right? And I hung up the phone and they did it. You know, And that wasn't fun, but it was needed to happen. And uh, on the other side of that, when this was going on, I traveled a lot. I mean, I wanted to be out in the field and, you know, we have 42 locations in Florida. We ended up with eight. Right. And so I remember I was out in, Sacramento had a big facility and there was, we were talking about what's going on. And, you know, people were always like, oh, are we done with the restructurings? I'm like, I can't tell you that. And what we see now, yes, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you, I, I can't, I'm not going to be honest with you. And this one lady, the county person, she's like, hey, how do you deal with the, how do you deal with the stress of this? And I said, because I always found humor is a part of me, you know, and, and help it kind of cool things down and i said look you know i sleep like a baby right i wake up at two in the morning crying and i wet the bed you know <laughs> just kind of let the air out of the room like hey look we're all in this thing right we all have to be honest about it but i had to let friends go you know and uh but i would say we'd laid off 3200 people we never had labor lawsuit. So I was proud that we treated people the best we could in a horrible time. And we also dealt with Chinese wallboard at that time. Have you guys heard about that? Not yeah, that. I remember that. You would have heard that. So we we're the only company who fixed every house that we shipped to. Only one. And we we're the only company that wasn't part of the class action suit. And so it's really, in really tough times, it's, you know, what do you stand for? Truly, like, what do you stand for? You know? And, you know, we've, but I think it's, that was a, that was a beast, but you know what? We got to a break even point when we came out of this thing, it's 60% less volume than we did before. And that's everybody getting behind it. You know, yeah, that's efficiencies, right? It is, you know, and it was, we restructured the whole company. We took layers out, but it was, we had three, four principles is we got to mitigate the losses. We got to prepare for the upturn. And we have to think big, right? We can't incrementalize our way to losing. I remember in September of 2006, we lost $18 million that month. Imagine, right? And the fourth thing was, how do we change the rules in this industry? 
And so that's one thing that I've tried to do the last couple of companies is where are the inefficiencies in this industry? You know, where are the points of differentiation and, and to drive price into like the third sentence, not the first, you know, <laughs> so service, value proposition, team, all those things, because, you know, it's wallboard, it's door hardware. I mean, there's got to be a reason why insurance, you know, why does, why do Bob and I have the relation we do? It's execution, it's you're there, it's bringing ideas, it's saving money, and it's giving a shit, you know? And that's pretty easy to see, and most times you don't. Brendan, with 29 companies that you've been a part of the acquisition, you know, for our listeners, I mean, are there some key themes, takeaways, a strategy that you've now developed over time so that you deploy that now every single time, or is everyone different? I mean, talk to us about kind of the lessons learned in that, because that's a big number. Yeah, I would say the... um most of them are pretty good and I almost put them in buckets, you know, where it's a tuck in, you can run it, keep most of the team and keep going. But what it's kind of what we call it a cornerstone acquisition where kind of, you know, we did a business, bought a business in 2005, 600 million in revenue in 35 locations. It really had a great team below the people who was leading. So, and that, I think that's one of the keys. If there's no talent below the seller, you got no business. And if the biggest mistake I made was we bought a business in an area that we wanted to be in, and it was a terrible culture. I mean, a total opposite around safety, around financial controls, and all these things that was kind of core to us. We wanted people to be entrepreneurs, but I always tell people, you can't be an entrepreneur with somebody else's money, <laughs> right? So, but I want you to have the spirit of an entrepreneur, but there's still rules, right? And so... We bought this business, it had 16 locations kind of in the auto industry, you know, in the early 2000s, or, you know, in the crapper, and um, got enamored by the revenue and the market share and spent four or five years restructuring, putting in a new team. And you know, it's, it's a fine business now, but it wasn't a good use of capital. And we should have really just put the flags up. So culture kills it every time for me. And you can, you know, if you need a new facility or need to upgrade the team, you can do that. But when it's just diametrically opposed to how you believe you should operate, run. There's another business out there. How do you assess that as you're going through those acquisitions? It's just during that diligence phase, getting to know folks and going on the yeah. floor. Or? And I think you know, once you get a handle on the people below them, you know, you can kind of get at it. And in the industries that I've operated in, you know, like the rebar concrete business, the wallboard business, and even the door hard business, which is a great business. Everybody kind of knows everybody enough. You can tap into manufacturers you know, in a non-direct way about how do they operate, a word of mouth from customers. So it's not that you have to do psychological interviews or anything like that. But I think once you get below that team that you're dealing with and seeing if there's some chops there, that's when you really... That's why the diligence phase, we do try to do HR stuff early before close. And Brennan, when you, you said culture a few times throughout, so like in your mind, as you're building these businesses, what does foster create a culture that you see is, you know, good? Yeah, I think it's, I'm trying to simplify it for me, is 
would I want to be part of this family, like personally? Would I want to live in a house with these people personally? You know, if there was someone laying on the counter, 100 bucks, would they take it or not? You know, and so it's not so much the financial side of it. It's the, I guess the best way to put it is, you know, when you read somebody's resume, it's, it's what they've done, maybe, right? <laughs> um, but I want to know who I'm going to be working with, you know? And so it's, you know, I've never sold a business where the growth trajectory wasn't the Nike shoe. But I think it's really, you know, who, who are you going to be with? Good times and bad. And don't expect all to be the same. But, you know, financial controls matter. You know, doing things safely matters and taking care of your team. So, Brendan, after your transition from there, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your experience and time at A.H. Harris? Yeah, so A.H. Harris was a business that was owned by a private equity firm in Chicago called Frontenac. And I was talking with those guys after I left L&W taking some time and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And, and um, they had a nice approach to how they invested. They find a leader first and then they go, go in an industry and then they go find deals. And they had bought a company maybe a year before I got involved with them that was a you know multi-location distribution business, much like L&W, but in the Northeast of the US. Been around 100 years, great reputation, owned by private another private equity firm, but family for a lot of years. And so I got on as a board, I invested money in it and, um, you know, started being a board member, which I, I was on a board of a public company, I still am. And so I, I liked board work, but I didn't want to, you know, 50, want to throw up the shoes. And, um, but the thought was, I'll do this and if I can help them and then we'll continue to look for a, a business. And then there were some, you know, some issues going on with integration of a very large acquisition. So they bought the business and then they bought about eight months later a business that was 70% the size of it. So it was a big elephant to swallow. And I'd done that, you know, so I thought I could help. And and um, the management team kept giving me the Heisman, you know. And so I'm not here to be management, but I, I can give you some help. And, you know, this is one of their biggest investments. And the team was just kind of bush league, you know. And so I, I finally told the guys that I, I'm not going anymore. I'm not wasting my time, you know. And uh, but I'm okay with the investment. And and then we just decided let's let's just make a change. And uh, they asked me if I would run the business. And um, I was living in Chicago, so I'm not moving. But I got an apartment there and ran the business. We hired a great CFO who um, worked with me, and we brought in some team. And it's, that business was just more of you know. Hate to be blunt, but let's get some adults in the room, <laughs> you know, and set budgets and hold people accountable, and you know, let's win. But you know, I'm looking for effort in U12 soccer, not in a business. You know, you got to post, you know, school. <laughs> I like that one. And so we, you know, we we changed the team, but we challenged them to really move and you know put in branch performance metrics and. You know, I always said there's 55 locations, there's always going to be one on the bottom. You just got to get off the bottom. You know, it's, it's going to happen, but what are you going to do to get off it? And so, but we saw it was a, you know, $400 million business. We could grow this thing to a billion or more just by moving, you know, south and west. And so I asked and we got agreement to go through a sale process to get with a larger PE firm to really grow this thing. And then at the last minute, a strategic came in and paid over 10 times for it. And I said, here's the keys. Have fun with it. 
it was a smart move for them, and and it, they they've been great to the employees. It wasn't the outcome we wanted, but it was a it was a super business, and you know really yeah, because that that was a quick turn too. I mean, that was what two and a half year business, three year business there. Two and a half, yeah, yeah, because we got it five year plan done in two and a half, and so it was. That's one thing I learned, you know, from speed is your friend if you if you have the right people, and so. But no, that was a really good win, and they're great people, and they went to a company with great culture. So that's I feel about that. And then I've been with Banner Solutions for two and a half years, and it's uh, again PE owned. It was recapped Halloween of last year, uh, so it's been a little over a year. We're together with Tailwind Capital out of New York. We're awesome guys, and so we're looking to we call it Banner 2.0 is take this thing to the next level, and you know double or triple it over the next couple of years and then sell it again. And so it's a great market. You think about how many doors there are, how many handles there are, commercial buildings, residential. So, you know, it's a great replacement business. And, um, you know, the competition is generally pretty good, but it's a safety and security item. If it's broken, you fix it. And we've seen a lot through COVID around hands-free, a lot of people moving to that. And then ironically, the only mineral that really fights COVID is copper. And so, you know, that's coming back that use kind of a, a dead item. So there's some pretty cool macros in this space. That's a hell of a lot nicer than the macros in a commodity drywall business. That's a, that's a gunfight every day. So, you know, this is not easy, but it's, it's a, it's a better environment. When you say copper fights it from a transfer standpoint. Yeah. Okay. It kills the virus. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So don't ask me any more about it because I got nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but that is interesting. Brendan, just from, from your vast perspective in business and, and buying and selling and running of companies, you know, Bob and I talk a lot on this podcast because it, it has kind of taken off in the era of COVID. Do you see the role of private equity continuing on like it has or like a lot of things pivoting and changing? You know, it's an interesting because I have a great question because I would say um, the banker who sold our business to Tailwind with me, who's a great guy, I talked to him last week and he said in November, um, there was like a fundamental shift in private equity where it's back to pre-COVID levels. And, you know, a lot of diligence remote. We integrated two businesses we bought recently uh, remotely. I, and I've never done that in 29 acquisitions. even thought you could do it, but ERP system, financials, all remote. And so I think, you know, I think it's coming back. I think the vaccine helps. I think there'll be a real chasm at the end of the day from how companies did through COVID or not, as far as multiple expansion. And, you know, we're, we're up this year organically. And so, you know, again, I think it goes back to the, the markets, but I think we have a hell of a team who's, you know, out there slaying the dragon every day. So we just got to keep doing it. But I think it's just a recent kind of shift. You know, a comment you made earlier that you love to build to a good outcome, like define for us what is a good outcome? Yeah, I think it's, it's not incremental, right? It's how do we, if we're a, a regional player, you know, doing a good job, how, how do we 
really get national? How do we widen the moat between us and our competition? Because customers have choices. So is it technology? Is it service offering? Is it speed to the market? Is it team? You know, and it's not, I think a lot of time in distribution businesses, there's a notion that the sales cures all. It's sales, it's operations, it's finance, collecting the money. Everybody plays a role. And so it's more of, you know, how do we leave this business dramatically better than it was when we got here? And, you know, that's creating jobs, that's creating EBITDA expansions, that's making some stupid mistakes and learning, which is, you know, plenty of those. But I think it's, I've learned more from my losses than my wins. And it's really about creating an environment where, you know, I go into a business, I'm thinking who's replacing me, right? So if I don't have it in the team, how do I get it? Or how do I develop it? Because I think the CEO's job is their own succession and strategy at the end of the day. And then creating a team, you know, that can can execute. And have to be much more complicated than that. <laughs> but that's not an easy solution. And so, you know, being responsible and, you know, not doing things illegal. But most competitors who are independents, family-owned businesses, they're not thinking about any ERP systems or how to use a CRM system to really grow your top line or how do you get pulled through sales or share a wallet growth. And so I think coming from larger businesses going into a couple hundred million dollar businesses, you kind of know what good looks like. So if you find good people that can augment your management team, then you got five people knowing what good likes. It's better than one. So build the right team and let people know where you're trying to get to, too. That's a good point. And, and so for you know, for listeners that are in the maturation of building their businesses and climbing to the revenue goals that they've set out for themselves, have you noticed like benchmarks at certain revenue where things have to change? You can't keep doing it the same to get to the next level. And if so, what are those? Yeah, and you know, I think you hit those inflection points in businesses. And and so, it, you know, I think it's it's either 100 or $200 million increments on where I'm coming from, where you kind of hit that point where like, uh, we want to get to north of a half a billion. So I want a team right now who knows how to do it. N- not in three years, right? And so, and I think it's really being honest with, you know, putting, I always say it's develop your strategy, develop the structure that does that, and then talk about people and then create the incentives in that order. Right. And if you maniacal on that, then you really do kind of be thoughtful and you're going to make some mistakes and move people around. But I've seen it in roles like CFOs, you know, where you get to a certain point and they just they don't have the, the breadth. And I, I changed out a CFO last year, a little over a year ago for that reason. You know, he, he started in small, you know, businesses and and he says, well, God, we're moving at such a pace with these acquisitions. And I, you know, I think I'm drinking out of a fire hose. I'm like, get a bigger mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, this, is, this is the business we're in, you know? Right. Yeah. And so I think you get a point where you got to find somebody else who can reset the pace and that can really bring in skills that are missing in the business. And I hired a COO recently who's done that and a CFO and you know, some FP&A people. So it's, and I think it's really, you know, I had a person that was working for me and running operations and I put a COO over him. And I, I said, look, if I put you in this role, you'd fail. And that's not fair to you. 
And I think if I find the right person, they could maybe get you to where you need to be that the next time, you know, there's a role here. But otherwise, I've seen it too often where you just people flounder in these roles. And, um, you know, just be honest. And mm-hmm. wait, shit, I've been fired. You know, <laughs> it happens. You know, so Brendan, you and I have talked a lot over the years on just like, you know, some of the things I think one of the things like is we're transition. And what I was thinking is, you know, we've, you shared a lot with me on how you're kind of pushing yourself and your kids and your family each and every day to get better and improve, like maybe talk about that. And then what that looks and feels like for you. Yeah. Great. You know, we have five kids and, and, you know, I have a junior in college and a freshman in college, 11th grader, and then a seventh grader. And we lost uh, our son two years ago to suicide at 12. Still my son, he's still part of the family. But you know, prior to that horrible thing happening, you know, we're a cool family. You know, three girls naturally, and then we adopted two boys from Ethiopia, not related. Our son Gabe, who passed, he came home 14 years ago yesterday. And then Isaiah, who's 13. And so we weren't a uh, and we we're totally cool with it. You know, you could go through an airport with nine kids looking like me, nobody looks, but you know, with us as a family, inter, inter, you know, interracial family, it's, you know, we don't blend in and I don't like to blend in. Right. And so, but well, we always, it's because Isaiah is going to be the best dressed one there. I've seen that little oh, man yeah. walking around <laughs> <laughs> wearing his Yeezys and all that. Shit. <laughs> um, but, you know, we always told our kids is, you know, just make a difference in life. You don't have to be a CEO. I didn't know I was going to be a CEO, but be a good person. You know, it's a, you know, it's corny sound of music. Climb every mountain song there. Just do find your path and be good at it. And if you're, you're going to work in construction, be good at it. If you're going to be a doctor, be good at it, you know? And so no pressure to kind of do anything other than what you feel you can do. And so we provided the, the environment for our kids and, you know, and they all were doing well. And then, you know, November 14th of 2018, our life changed forever. And, you know, my son was in seventh grade and he had uh, my wife, my daughter was in college, the oldest one. My wife took the other three to Iowa for a day and a half to see her mom. And Gabe had confirmation thing on Saturday. So I took him and, um, you know, dropped him off. Actually, Carol left the house and I said, all right, mom's gone. Let's go to Jewel and get whatever you want. We just got to throw it out before she gets home. (laughs) (laughs) He gets his shit food and we go off and we have a great weekend. You know, he did his stuff. We went out to dinner at a diner and I uh, was walking to uh, Menards that morning looking for something and walking down the street and we actually held hands, which you didn't do. And I said, Dad, Gabe, you're doing you know, great in school. I'm proud of you. And he, yeah, Dad, I'm lit. You know, and then I took him to basketball practice on Monday night. And then Wednesday, he's gone. No signs, no warning no crying, nothing to his brothers and sisters, just existential crisis for all of us. Like how, you know? And so it was a real defining moment and you're trying to get yourself to breathe, let alone take care of your family and fuck business. I didn't care, you know, wasn't even anywhere around, but it was such a crazy environment. Like I said, I've run three businesses at the time, been in the army. Okay. There's a problem. What's the situation? What, who do we have? 
what's the workarounds? Lose a child to suicide, there's nothing. It's a total, you're in no man's land. And so, you know, we went about, you know, the whole burying them and the, just all kinds of awful, right? And families, kids are suicidal. It's just like, fuck, does this happen? Like we were, you know, not, you know, the Cunninghams, but we were you know, a pretty good family. And um, I didn't even think a 12-year-old thought about that at all. Like never, you know, and especially one who's great looking, funny as shit, had a bunch of friends. Subsequently, we found out that he, you know, wrote a note and he was he was uh, being picked on at school. He was the only one of two black kids in his school, Catholic school. And, um, you know, we didn't know anything about it. There was cyberbullying. He was searching, you know, suicidal stuff on his school iPad during school. And so cyberbullying, all this crazy, just surreal, the whole thing. And so, you know, we started Gabriel's Light, which Bob is involved with, to really never let it happen to another kid. You know, and he slipped through the cracks and I'm fucking pissed. And, but I can either wallow in it or we can affect change. And so, because um, the pain is going to be there regardless. And so we've, we've been out since November 13th of last year. And I give my wife all the credit. She's, uh, I call her a steamroller, steamroller with velvet gloves. I mean, <laughs> kind of a couple pillars. It's around internet security at schools. It's the Reagan Trust but Verify. And because kids are smarter than we are, you know, a lot of training around cyberbullying and how do you recognize it, both for teachers and for parents, just thoughts around bullying in general. And when we were kids, you had to be kind of big to be a dick. Now you can be whatever you want, you know, and the stuff they say is just nasty. You know, you can, you know, just wipe out a friend. I forget the word they call it, but, you know, you, you just, you don't matter anymore. And then a lot around kindness campaigns. So we've kicked this off grassroots. You know, my wife's been on Nora O'Donnell on CBS News, and this was all pre-COVID. And so we know of several kids that we've impacted positively, and we only wanted to impact one. That would have been a win, but I think COVID just kind of exacerbated it. So, you know, we're better, but it's a uh, crime. You know, his, my other son struggles mightily, and as does everybody else, but time helps. Therapy, which I've been in, you know, for quite some time, has been hugely formative in me kind of working myself through this thing. I was a stage four cancer guy 26 wow. years ago. I never thought for one minute I could cure this thing by myself. And so when it comes to mental health, how could you possibly, your most complex thing in your body, figure you can kind of work through it? And so that's kind of the whole thing about Gabriel's Light, too, is it's okay not to be okay. And, um, I've been fucked up most of my life, you know, but I think it's really when you get something like this, it's truly resets, you know, what's important to yourself. I always told somebody I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy's trainer. And it's still sometimes, you know, surreal. Like I still once want to call Isaiah Gabe, you know, nobody gets upset, but he's still part of the family. But being able to take a horrible, horrible outcome and do something good, it's really helped us as well. And I think it goes back to kind of the core of who we are is, you know, good people want to do good and want to make things better and, and want to do it with a good group of people. 
you know, and we've had uh, a friend of mine, very close friend, his daughter died by suicide this fall. We've known him for 29 years. And, you know, it's such a horrible thing. And the amount of, it's the number two leading cause of death of people 10 to 24. I never knew that. And uh, COVID just, you know, exacerbates that. But I tell my kids, look, Gabe is part of our family. What happened is part of our family, but that doesn't necessarily define us entirely. And so, you know, we've come up with this family mantra, kind of stole pieces of it, but it's get up, look up, never, ever give up and giddy up. And so you're going to face shitty things. I don't know that you'll face anything harder from here, but I don't give up. No way. Uh, not for my kids, not in business. And if I'm going to die, I'm going to die swinging, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I think that's, you know, I, I would say our, my relationship with my other son is probably dramatically better now. And so uh, I sense a bit of a gift from his brother. And I was talking to him one time and he's a stubborn motherfucker like me, but <laughs> I, I, did, I said, I think coming through this whole thing, you and I have a better relationship than I ever did. And I'm really glad. And I said, it's, you know, it's mostly on me. And he said, no, it's not just you. It was me too. And this is an 11 year old at the time. And so, you know, you live, you learn from everything. And, <clears throat> but I think, you know, the relationship with Bob just got that much more real when he told me two months after some of his struggles and you can't judge a book by the cover, you know, and, and it's, you get to the heart of people and you really find out who's real when things get real bad. Cause it was interesting. We, we lost some people that were friends that just, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on it, but it's just, wow. You know, cause it's the whole, you know, people act how they want, but I don't, I don't need that. But I think just having, that's when you really separate who's a friend and who's not. And as tough as it might be, it's an interesting process to know who you'd really go with. You know? Yeah. Brendan, well, first of all, thank you for sharing. One of the things that I was thinking about as you're talking was like, you're obviously struggling as you're going through this, but you probably also got your family there that is like coming to you as the rock, you know, within that family to like, come to, to like how did you deal with because like there's probably like the part of hey how do i make sure everybody's good here but like i also got to take care of me right like there's both parts of that like how did you work through that yeah i um you know gabe died in november i went back to work in december just because i thought i should and uh in march i lost it i just i just collapsed and um never you know never experienced anything like that but i just you know, you can only bullshit for so long, you know, especially when it's like as real as it gets. And so I give credit to the previous PE firm. The guy came and he said, you know, do you need time off? And I started crying and, you know, I mean, I, you know, I lost it. And I said, yeah, I do. And I found a therapist, Neil, who may have saved my life. I'm certainly got it back on track. And um, he just listened Man, the first time I met him, he cried the first three times. I'm like, who's fuck's paying for this? Like, <laughs> you know? uh, but he was just a genuine soul who, and we don't talk about Gabe all the time, but it's just, it was incredibly invaluable to me. And I never thought about doing therapy. 
um, the macho, you know, save the world. But I like being vulnerable. You know, that's how I got to how am I going to fix me? Because I realized I couldn't help my family until I got myself to a spot where I was manageable or at least not spinning down because I was going down a, a tough spot uh, and faking it with my kids. And so we did some family therapy. And, you know, the other thing I found is I cried in front of my kids. And I think that really, and I meant to do it, but, uh, you know, it just came out. But I think for them to see me truly hurting allowed them to kind of, all right, let's try to work through this thing. And so there's smaller, much smaller versions of that in business. But I think, you know, get yourself fixed first. And if you got problems, deal with them head on. Because they, my experience was they are only going to get worse. So, you know, I went to church. My family's not back at the church because of the stuff with the Catholic school. But that's part of how I, you know, I swear like a sailor, but, you know, I am <laughs> and, um, and it really truly came out, you know, in the last couple of years. I don't do the rosary, but I mean, it matters to me. I don't like some people in the Catholic church, but I still have faith, you know, and I think it took me a while, but I've separated those two. And so I think it's, you know, my advice would be take care of yourself, your mind before your body. And, um, you know, know that it's going to be work and it's, and it's going to be bumpy, you know, and it's that line that, it's easy to sail when it's smooth water. But the other thing we showed our kids is like, you know, grief is like the oceans. Sometimes it's smooth and sometimes it's rough as hell and you just better know how to swim, you know? And um, so, but I, again, I wouldn't much better at talking about it now and um, because I want to help people. And if anybody's out there struggling, get help. It's, you don't want to go through what we went through. No, I think, Brendan, like I remember when we sat down at dinner after and it was just you and I went to that that spot, summer house over by by you up there. And you know, I shared with you kind of some of the stuff I went through when I was in my 20s. And we talked about this. I remember one of the things that you said to me that just like has always stuck with me is that what you just mentioned, which is like, you got to take care of like your mind as much as you got to take care of your body. And for some reason, a lot of people just want to neglect that. And and just think they can do it on their own, and to go out and get help and do that, I think is is so hugely important. And you know, also I think what's amazing about you is like I've always loved your humility, your honesty, and to your vulnerability. I mean, the way that we were able to share was because you opened up when we were talking, and that's what's created such a great friendship between us. And now, like what you guys are doing with Gabriel's Light and all of that, and it's going to have a positive effect on so many people and probably so many people you don't even, you'll never even know about the effect it has on. And it's really amazing to see what you guys are doing. It's just, you guys are, you and Carol are amazing people and it's been so good to get to get, get to know you guys. Yeah. No, yeah, it was, thank you. Because, you know, the year after Gabe died, I had some friends who did a mass at the church and I, I talked to people because Carol couldn't, and I'd give me a mic, I'll say anything, but, but it was, you know, I remember saying that we would have never signed up for this role. Who would, right? But it's ours now and watch out because we are all in on this thing. And 
you know, I had a guy who I, I don't know if he's, he's down in Texas, but his son, dad, Brad Hunstable or something, his son, same kind of thing, 12 years old last year. And I reached out on Facebook and I'm like, man, I'm so sorry. And, you know, if there's anything I can immediately text him back and he's starting to build this thing, but his momentum around youth suicide and prevention. And um, it's almost therapeutic for me to help or just listen, you know, or cry with the person, whatever. But I think that's the thing that when we were going through it, I, I didn't, I don't want to hear stories. I just wanted my buddy to sit with me at a restaurant. Yeah. And, and then it evolves, but you know, that was, I, I learned more in the last two years than I learned in the previous 52, like hands about me, about how you deal with struggles. My team at Banner Solutions is awesome, you know, and um, one of them asked me one time, like, how do you, how do you come back and do this? Like, and I said, this is what I do, you know, and I have to do it for Gabe, but I have to do it for my wife, Carol and Margo and Nora and Maeve and Isaiah, you know, this is. The cards I was dealt, and I'm gonna I'm gonna play them. Brendan, I'm I'm thank you, as Bob said, for for just sharing so deeply your experiences with us. I'm glad you brought up Brad Hunstable because I was doing a little research before the the podcast and noticed that you were connected with him on LinkedIn. He's actually uh, runs a business here in Fort Worth, and yeah. I've been uh, following what he's been sharing on on LinkedIn and his story, and it's just it's truly amazing as well. Um, and I so, mean, you, you read about the personalities of his son and my son. My God, it's like the same person, you know, same age. And um, but it's, you know, there's another fight person. I'm not yeah, going to fly. Exactly. You know? No, his his vulnerability and the way he's turned into it. I mean, I think you know, it's while technology and and the connectivity brought by all of these social media apps had the best intentions in the world. You know, we're we're seeing the unintended consequences of, of the way kids interact with each other now, and you know, it, it's a it's a hidden monster that you know it, it's people like you that are willing to put yourself out there and start something and and be humble and share that they're going to turn it around. So I just want to thank you for that. No, much much appreciated, and and uh, you know, there's. Bark technologies and other things that people can use as kids, and and um, I think it goes back to what I told our kids: is just make a difference in whatever you do, and, and this has become part of our making a difference. And uh, painful reason, but we're going to do it. Brendan, you talked a lot about Isaiah, and obviously the the commonalities there with Gabe. But how are how are your other children doing, and and how's your wife doing? Yeah, so. Um, my wife, she's she's a machine. I mean, she's everything she does, she does exceptionally well. She found Gabe and so had to go through some kind of like post-traumatic stress training called EMDR, worked. And then Margot, she was at school in Connecticut, came back for a year and now is back at St. Mary's in Notre Dame, finishing her nursing degree. So, And then Nora's at a freshman at NYU. And then Maeve is a junior at Jones College Prep here in Chicago. But everybody, you know, went through therapy, some more than others. I'm still involved with it. And uh, there's no right or wrong on that. And so um, we do some family therapy. But I would say, you know, everybody's back to living their life. And, you know, I wear a band 
Gabriel's light band and I will the rest of my life, but it's my way of keeping him with me. And, um, you know, I got his prayer card in my iPhone, um, but I just know he's around. But we, he was psycho about orange. He wore it all the time. So every place we go, we bring an orange ribbon and we put it on a chair. So it's a weird balance to try to figure out how to heal and not, you know, forget. And, you, you know, we screwed it up, but I think we've gotten pretty close. But I would say that our family is as direct as any family I know. I think we were pretty much before. If people are in a bad mood, I'm like, are you suicidal? No. Okay, great. Shouldn't be scared to say that, you know, and uh, because somebody might say yes, and then maybe you could actually help them, you know, get a therapist. But but no, I appreciate you asking that. I think we're, I think you you get through it, you don't get over it, right? And so the the raw intensity, I don't, everybody's different, but they said it's usually two years to get over it. I'm like, it's going to be what it is, you know? Yeah. But I think the, the tears and the crying is far less than it was. And so we, you know, I want to remember his birthday and the day he came home, not the day he died. I mean, I'd rather celebrate life than, than the way he left, but and also remember him for the, you know, the 14 or 13 years he was alive, he was a, a nut, you know, he was a blast and had one bad day, really bad day. But, you know, he I'll tell you one funny story. He's like 10 at the time. And we have lived in the city. So these small ass yards and it's leaves were down. And so we're raking the leaves and he takes the rake and he's, he just, it's like 10 in the morning. He just throws it at the storm window and shatters it. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, Hey, what the fuck? He's, He's like, well, I wanted to see if it would break. And I'm like, hey. He's like, what? I said, start running. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know. Oh, that's good. It's plenty of good stuff. So, Brendan, if you think about this new world of podcasts, why, why Bob and I are one of our main passions is that it just, it captures stories forever. And so in thinking about that medium of of capturing your story now that, you know, people interested in Gabriel's light can come back and listen to, your wife and kids can go back and listen to, you can go back and listen to, you know, there's this saying out there that it's not what you know, it's who you know, but we, we reverse it around and we say it's not who you know, it's who knows you. So in thinking about this podcast, what do you want people to know about you and with this medium, what do you want your wife and your kids to know about you? Great question. You know, I always have loved a quote by Walt Disney. If you can dream it, you can do it. Right. And so, and that happens with thought, passion, energy, building a team, teaching people. But, you know, I think there's a lot that people can learn from Gabriel's light that's got just going to make the world a better place. Right. And so from tragedy comes good. You know, that's a great thing. And, and, you know, we told our kids too, let's not be defined by how you got back up, not by how you got knocked down. Cause we didn't see it coming. It was a fucking steamroller. Right. But you're still good people. You still got things you can do and you're going to be successful and you're married and you'll have kids. I don't care if you're gay or straight. I just want you to, to live a good life and, and to give back. And so, you know, for me personally, I have people that have come work for me from two different companies. 
And so they, I got some still coming back to where I am. So I think I'm a generally a good person. I'm honest. I'm genuine. And don't ask me a question if you don't want the answer, right? But I'm also humble enough to know I need like really good people, really smart people that want to make a lot of money and do some great stuff for this business. But I also have a, a perspective of, you know, 26, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer, told I was going to live three months. I said, fuck that. I'm not going to do that. And then got married, had a bunch of kids. And then we lost Gabe to suicide. And you hit these defining moments, right? And neither of which I signed up for. But I think it helped me really understand that, you know, what I'm at the core of who I am. And, and it's, I just want to be able to say that I left this place a little bit better than when I got here. And um, I don't think I would have said that two years ago, but I think I, I really mean that now. So there's more work to do. That's a hell of an answer, Brendan. You're a good man. We appreciate you coming on and sharing everything with us today. Thanks so much. And, you know, as I've told you a million times, I'm, I'm blessed to have you as a person in my life and can't wait to continue to build our relationship together. So thank you. No, no, it's it goes the same. And Mike and Johnny, thank you. And I, I still don't know why she's marrying you. Just <laughs> <laughs> We can cut that part out, Johnny. <laughs> no, no, no. That's coming up front. There we go. <laughs> All awesome, right, Brendan. That was Thanks. great. It was Thank a lot you. of fun. Really enjoyed it. That was it. good. All right. Happy holidays. Thank you, Sarah. Good to see you. Too. Yeah. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.